You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hey, Griot fam. We know you love the Griot Black Podcast Network and wouldn't want to miss out on any new episodes. So you'll want to hear this. A recent update by Apple might have paused your podcast feed. This means our new episodes aren't being downloaded to your phone. But there's a quick fix. For our Apple listeners, here's what you do. Open Apple Podcasts and search for the Griot Black Podcast Network or the name of your favorite Griot pod. Then go to our show page and look at the top right corner. If you see a pause button there, simply tap it to continue seeing episodes in your feed. If you see a download button, go to settings and set it to automatically download episodes. If you see a plus button, tap it to follow the show. There you have it. That's it. Now you won't miss out on any new episodes of your favorite shows on the Griot Black Podcast Network. Well, hello and welcome to Writing Black. I am your host, Maisha Kai, lifestyle editor here at The Griot. And I am so excited about today's show because this is a Griot fam episode. We have some of these from time to time and uh, it's always exciting, but this one's especially exciting for me because this is also a personal friend. Uh, You may know her as uh, one of the Griot's anchors. You may also know her from her viral moments as a political pundit on CNN and elsewhere. She is also our VP of digital content here at The Griot, but she's also the author of this amazing new book, American Negra, my friend, Griot fam, Natasha Alford. Hey, Natasha. Hey, sis. Thank you for the welcome. (laughs) That was beautiful. Looking at you holding the book, it's just like, I can't describe the feeling. We are so proud of you. We are so proud of you. So excited for you. We know this was a long time in the making. And we're going to dig into it because, um, you know, listen, like you and I have been friends for a couple of years now. You know, you have been uh, a tremendous source of support for me here at the Griot and, you know, somebody I'm really proud to call a friend. And, you know, what was really exciting for me as somebody who considers you a friend was all this stuff I didn't know about you. Um, you know, American Negra, the title alone, as the title suggests, obviously, is a story about identity. You are uh African-American and Puerto Rican. Um, And, you know, as we talk a lot about uh, racial politics in the United States, we talk a lot about identity politics in the United States. And I think, you know, when it comes to the idea of biraciality, you know, that's a very nuanced conversation that most of us don't get right, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. let alone (laughs) talking about, you know, this mixing of ethnicities and identities and, you know, nationalities in a sense, obviously Puerto Rico being part of the United States. But um, tell me about the journey to this book. Mm. Well, it was definitely a journey. Uh, I always knew, I think if you love reading there's a part of you that wants to write a book, that wants to tell your story. And I'm pretty sure it was the great Toni Morrison who said, if there's not you know, a book that, that you wish that you had in the world, you need to write it, some version of that. And so that's what it felt like growing up. I mean, I, I read everything from Souls of Black Folk at 12 years old to Babysitter's Club. Uh, but there was no story that really captured the essence of what it was like growing up as me. Right. Um, I've never called myself biracial. I, I actually don't feel that way. Like I'm, I'm a black woman, uh, but I am multi-ethnic. Right. And so being multi-ethnic, it's just a unique experience. And those two groups of people, African-Americans and Puerto Ricans, I mean, we're in proximity in ways that are just pretty undeniable in the United States. 
We often grow up in the same neighborhoods, in the same cities. A lot of that is systemic by design, on purpose. And so what does it mean to be a product of those two things? And I think working at the Grio, where we cover a lot of pop culture moments, you see a lot of moments when it goes left, right? Uh, African-Americans and Latinos, so to speak, which is also you know a term that needs unpacking, where you have these moments where somebody says something crazy about you know black women versus Latino women, or the Erica Mena situation where it's like, you know, you have a Latina woman raising black children and yet a comment, uh, a racist comment, she didn't, she, she said she didn't understand what the problem was, right? So I, I am the product of those two worlds. And so I felt it was worthy to tell this story, not just from a personal sense, but historically. This is history uh, that we need to know. And so if you read this book, I promise you, you will not just get my story, but you will learn a lot about America that maybe you didn't know. You know, this is not just a memoir in the straightforward sense. This is um, equal parts memoir and sociological study and history. You know, I did learn a tremendous amount reading this book, you know, as you're taking us through the, the journeys of not just Puerto Rico. I mean, we're talking about the Dominican Republic. We're talking about Haiti. We're talking about so many things um, within what we consider the larger diaspora of black people, right? Um, that really, you know, does drive home some of these things we see every day, you know, especially us as black folks, whether we're talking about colorism and texturism or class issues or um, just the way that white supremacy kind of ekes its way into every facet of our existence and, and our psyches, you know? Um, and I, a, wanted to really thank you for that, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the research that goes into putting something like this together. And then, you know, as a writer, how you're then paralleling these moments, obviously, and, and kind of interweaving them, which it's done really artfully with your own story. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So the, the research started years ago, y'all. I mean, I was in, I was a college kid trying to find answers and I won't give away too much of the story, but it started in college. Uh, when I heard the, the term Afro-Latino, and I was trying to understand where I fit within that. And so the research started then, so this has been you know over 15 years of trying to find untold stories uh, and trying to find overlap and connection. I had been racialized from birth, called negra or morena by Latinos who described me by my color first, in this country and abroad while also experiencing Blackness apart from the Latino community's conception of it, rooted in my African-American roots. That apartness had given me a unique positioning between two worlds. One of the figures that people will hear about in the book is Arturo Alfonso Schomburg. If you walk through Harlem, New York, you will pass by the Schomburg Center. And many of us don't even know that that is a Black Puerto Rican man who, who documented Black history. He was told as a child that Black people had no history worthy of tracking when he was living in Puerto Rico. And so when he migrated to New York City, this was his mission to show uh, just, you know, the power that we've always had, the beauty that we've always had, but he didn't do it in an essentializing way, right? He wasn't corny about it. It wasn't like, oh, we were always kings and queens, as much as that's well-intentioned. He's saying that we, in our full humanity, 
are worthy of, of documenting and understanding and that by understanding our history, we can navigate the present, which is obviously so relevant given that people are trying to ban history right now. And then the other piece of the research actually came through, um, I'm in graduate school right now as I'm working, uh, which is, you know, a little bit crazy. Where are you in graduate school, Natasha? Where are you in graduate school? Princeton University, (laughs) Um, you know, an excellent research institution. Shout out to Princeton, shout out to SPIA, the School of Public and International Affairs, where I'm getting a, a master's degree in public policy. But here at Princeton, I took a class in the African-American Studies Department, and it was called Afro-Diasporic Dialogues. And it is about just what you said, that we have been in dialogue with each other, even across you know, geographic borders, uh, for forever. I didn't know that African-Americans migrated to Haiti. Okay, we talk about Haitians. Uh, I didn't know that either. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? After yeah, the Haitian Revolution... Haitians were like, yo, y'all need to come over here because we are about freedom. If you come here, you're automatically a citizen of Haiti. And there were African-Americans who left Philadelphia and Baltimore and and left and went to Haiti and became part of the community there. So why don't we know those stories? Like, why aren't those common stories? So that was part of the intention of the book was to put us in conversation with some of those stories. And it really is just a start. You know, there are scholars who've been doing this for years. And so I include a bibliography because I want people to go out and seek this knowledge in a deeper way. So yeah, it was absolutely intentional on my part. I had to give that nod to Princeton because you, you know, this is this is where you are currently in your life. There are a couple other schools that factor very heavily into this story of yours. Uh, one of them being Northwestern here in my town of Chicago, right outside, um, which is, <laughs> hey, uh, but the other being Harvard, um, which, you know, I know was a pivotal place for you. It's It's very clearly illustrated in this incredible book, but also. Obviously, it's it's been a flashpoint lately. And I think like your story kind of emerging at this time um, really, I think, gives a greater dimension to what, you know, we've kind of maybe seen splash in the headlines about uh, Harvard and maybe what it means to be black at Harvard and then finding your then more nuanced place within that black community at Harvard. Um, how was it kind of revisiting those really formative years of your life? It was necessary. Um, I, I think I don't fully, I, I didn't fully understand the impact that Harvard had on me until years later, right? Because in many ways, you're still, you're always living in the shadow of Harvard once you go to a university like that. Most days, I didn't feel like a Harvard grad. My life hadn't magically become wealthier or as privileged as that of many of the friends I went to school with. I had privilege for sure but I was still trying to move up, to feel whatever power it was that I supposedly had to make the life I wanted, to make a difference in the world that mattered. The things that people project on you, the things that people expect of you, I mean, it is, there's a pressure that comes with that, which is magnified when you are Black, right? It's a pressure from your own community as well as outside of your community. And in some ways, as we've seen in the news with the story of Dr. Claudine Gay, being at a place like Harvard actually puts a target on your back. 
There's always someone who is trying to uh, test your intelligence or prove that you are not as intelligent as they assume you think you are. Um, and it's a very complex history because this is an institution that was built on the backs of slavery, which you know I talk about in the book. I talk about the the money from the slave trade that that contributed to building the many of the buildings that we walk through, right? And yet, even with all of that, there was a thriving, strong, real black community there uh, that wasn't new, that had been around for for a very long time. And uh, I didn't know that. Harvard was going to be in the news like this when I was writing this book. I didn't know that affirmative action, you know, the university would be sued, which would lead to affirmative action being, um, racial affirmative action being killed. Um, I didn't know it. And yet uh, the fact that it comes together now, I think is important because what I want people to understand is that there is room for for us to to be present in all places. Mm -hmm. And... I actually want to go to HBCU all my life. That was actually my dream. Uh, But systemically, right, being from a working class family, that inclined me to go towards the opportunity where the financial aid was fully covered. And so my my best financial aid package came from this university. And so that was a choice that I made, um, driven largely in part by finances. And so, what does it mean to uh, feel compelled to go to these universities for that reason? I think that's an important conversation that we need to have. But also, why do we deserve to stake our claim there? I think we, d- we deserve to be present in these places. It's about having the choice. And so what I, I want people to take from this is that if you so choose this path, Uh, There is a community there for you. There is an alumni network that is there for you, even with all the complexities. Uh, And and do not feel that you don't deserve a place there or that you should be somehow afraid of going there. Uh, Because if you do go, there are people that have your back. And so that is part of the message. I love that message. And we're going to talk more about this amazing book, American Negra, and more with our Griot fam, Natasha Alford, when we come right back. And we are back with more Writing Black and more with our griot fan, Natasha Alford, who has written her first book. This is her memoir, American Negra. You know, um, wow, we were just talking about uh, this idea of worthiness. Um, you know, we talked about it with regard to Arturo Schomburg. And it's something that, you know, I think without spoiling for what I hope are many readers of this book, You know, you talked about how those of us who are avid readers, myself included, you know, there is that thing that we have within us. Like, do I have a story? Do I have a story worth telling? Right. I know at some point there is a point in the book where you ask, is is my story worth telling? And you have points where people challenge you about the worth of the stories that you want to tell. Um, Can we talk about finding your worth as a writer and not just someone, you know, who tells other people's stories as a journalist, but telling your own? Because I think. As journalists, the first thing we're ever told is like, you're not the story. You're not the story. (laughs) (laughs) The story's never about you. (laughs) We avoid that at all costs. I I, I have to say, I think I picked journalism because I was hiding a bit. Like Mm. I wanted to, to immerse myself in other people's stories. I wanted to be present, but not necessarily put myself out there. 
And journalism is a great way to do that because people see you asking the questions and they see your byline, but they don't necessarily know you. Um, and so I was okay with that for a long time, but I do think that as I started to look at my journey, I said, wow, this, someone needs to know what is on the other side of fear. Someone needs to know what is on the other side of breaking the golden handcuffs, um, you know, walking away from other people's expectations. They need to know that there's beauty on the other side. There's victory on the other side that is worthy. And, and often when you're talking about black stories, people expect trauma, they want pain, they want, you know, all of these things which are valid and worthy of, of sharing. But this is not a memoir of like deep trauma. If anything, it's my parents who survived trauma, you know, the trauma of racism and uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse. My parents survived all that. I am the next generation. And so what does it mean to break some of those curses, um, to, to move past some of those traumas? I, I think that I sort of embody that story. And if you are a writer who wants to tell your story, it, it, there, there's, there is meaning in a, in a regular life. <laughs> you know, like you can make meaning in that and others can, can draw lessons from that. So I just want to encourage people uh, to know if you think about writing a story that it doesn't have to be some dramatic a uh, crazy, you know, uh, movie that we would see, right? Black exploitation film. It it can be about your humanity. That is the fullness of humanity. I love that. You know, I and I don't know if I call yours a regular life. I, I can see how I feel like that because it's your life. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. you know, and I can also see this is, you know, I'm going to come back to this 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 next part. But you know, I found I I related a lot to uh, to your life. Um, I also just one of the things that I really, really admired and loved about the way that this story is told and not just the way it's told. I mean, it's just is the story, your life is that it's not linear, right? Like that, you know, because this book could have just as easily been called American Dream, because in a lot of ways you embody a dream, you know, that migrationists, wherever they're coming from have of what you can accomplish in America, you know, how far your children can go um, in this often very fraught, you know, country of ours. Um, but I was really struck by how this idea of leaning into opportunities, leaning into pivots, being able to say, no, this isn't it, right? Because I think that's another thing a lot of us fear doing we think that okay this is the path and i have to i ah i've committed i have to you know um and i think like you know both as a person and as a writer that's an asset you know that that ability to identify the moment and pivot like tell me tell me just how that has functioned for you and i guess how it functions for you as a journalist because obviously that's a form of writing as well and now as an author. Well, that's the ultimate compliment that this book could be called American Dream because that, I mean, I'm like getting emotional here. That is beautiful. And that's what I want. There's a universality in this story. It doesn't matter color of your skin, you know, your background. I think all people can identify with trying to find what your American dream is. Um, the, the messiness of it, uh, your question about it not being linear. Look, I, my life was a hot mess at times, right? Like 
I remember bill collectors calling me while I was live on TV. Like, imagine that. People are watching you on TV thinking that you somehow represent some sort of glamorous role in American society, and you have bill collectors calling you, <laughs> threatening to turn your lights off, right? Um, that was happening because I took a risk and I jumped out on, on faith and I didn't have savings when I went off to graduate school to try to break into television. And uh, I didn't have a certain um, financial safety net that a lot of my fellow Ivy League uh, classmates did. And yet I was okay with it being a mess uh, for a little bit, right? I, was, I wasn't afraid to get messy because there felt like, there was a higher calling on my life. And I, I was looking around at one of the jobs you'll read about in the book, very cushy job. It was a six figure job and I was in my cubicle and I was just like, this is it. Like this, I didn't, I didn't fight to make it to college and to go to this particular college just to sort of be here. I was watching the world move around me and I felt like I was standing still. And so I think you have to trust that the higher power that makes all of this work, right? Doesn't want you to settle. Doesn't want you to settle for a life that isn't worthy of you. And if you have something you want to give to the world, you've got to go out and you have to, you have to, to give it to the world and you have to do whatever it takes to, to get there. So there's this balance of going out and making it happen, but also being patient in certain seasons where maybe you want to move before you've finished learning what you need to learn. Uh, and mm -hmm. so this book covers that struggle. And I think it's a particularly good for my, my, my messy 20 somethings. If you're in your twenties and it's a little <laughs> bit messy, a little rocky, <laughs> this is the book for you <laughs> because it will affirm that it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out. <laughs> well, listen, as somebody who had some messy, messy thirties as well, and maybe okay. later, uh, you know, <laughs> I found, I found oh, yeah. it very, very affirming. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about that and more when we come back in just a moment with Natasha Alford, America Negra, and more Writing Black. I'm political scientist, author, and professor, Dr. Christina Greer, and I'm host of The Blackest Questions on the Griot's Black Podcast Network. This person invented ranch dressing around 1950. Who are they? I have no idea. This all began as an exclusive Black History trivia party at my home in Harlem with family and friends. And they got so popular, it seemed only right to share the fun with our Griot listeners. Each week, we invite a familiar face on the podcast to play. What was the name of the person who was an enslaved chief cook for George Washington and later ran away to freedom? No, th this is why I like doing stuff with you because I leave educated. I was not taught this in Alabama public schools. Question yeah. number three, you ready? Yes, let me okay. try to redeem myself. How did we go from Kwanzaa to like these obscure... Sport, darling. <laughs> this is sport. like the New York Times crossword from a Monday to a Saturday. Right or wrong, because all we care about is the journey and having some fun while we do it. I'm excited and also a little nervous. Oh, listen, no need to be nervous. And as I tell all of my guests, this is an opportunity for us to educate ourselves because Black history that. is American history. Latoya Cantrell? That's right, Mayor okay. Latoya Cantrell. Hercules Posey. Mm. Born in 1754, and he was a member of the Mount Vernon slave community widely admired for his culinary skills. I'm going to guess Afropunk. Close is okay. Afro Nation. 
So last year, according to my research, it's Samuel Wilson, a.k.a. Falcon. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I, I, am, I am disputing this. I just don't know nothing today. It's I'm going to pour myself a little water while you tell me the answer. The answer is Seneca Village, which began in 1825 with the purchase of land by a trustee of the AME Zion Church. So give us a follow, subscribe, and join us on The Blackest Questions. All right, we're back with our Grio fam, Natasha Alford, and her new book, American Negra, which is, uh, you know, a gorgeous memoir. I'm so proud of our family here. Like, you know, my friend, my fan, like, so, you know, one of the things, Natasha, that, you know, aside from the ridiculous amount of similarities I saw between the two of us in this book, and, you know, again, I, I just think it really does speak to just how universal these stories are. And I say that as somebody who is neither multi-ethnic nor even a millennial, <laughs> you know, nor from Syracuse. Uh, I, I was really struck by the vulnerability here. I was struck by, you know, the way that you were unpacking some really, really deeply intimate issues, uh, including health issues that you had fought for a really long time, I think, to kind of control you know do that thing that we do right as black people as black women especially you know like i'm gonna superwoman my way through this like was this cathartic for you in kind of i guess getting to the other side of whatever that that hang up was for you yes it was cathartic and it was so freeing um i have to admit there were chapters that as i was writing them it was difficult to look at what i wrote right, to look back and to read it because you're putting yourself um, back in time, right? You're sort of looking at a scar and you're reminding yourself of how you got that scar. Uh, and so there's a rawness of emotion and mindset that you have to tap into when you're writing in order to be transparent. But I thought it was worth it. Uh, I wanted others to feel less isolated uh, even if you are a person who's going through something, mental health, physical health, and you choose to never share it with the world, I just wanted people to know that they were not alone. It had only been a few hours since my lupus diagnosis, and I was already going through all the stages of grief. Anger over what I'd been told, denial that this was a real thing versus some fluke on a blood test gone wrong, and bargaining with God about what lay ahead. Why right now? Why would you let me get this close to everything I ever wanted and then give me this disease? And that whatever they were going through, there was someone else who, who also had gone through a version of that. And this was just how I chose uh, to be transparent. It, I always felt that if I would be in the public eye, I didn't want people to get to know some idealized version of me, but really a fully actualized human being with warts and fears and, and real struggles. Um, but ultimately, this is about letting people know that you can still thrive in spite of those things. And really, it's up to you to define what thriving is. It does not have to be someone else's definition of success, um, of wellness, uh, of making it. Right. It really is about what you decide. And so, yes, I hope that this is freeing for others as difficult as it was for me to to talk about it. Listen, I think that there are going to be so many readers who are grappling with something similar, if not that exact thing. And 
who are going to feel really affirmed by that, like feel really seen. Cause I don't know. And I say this as somebody who obviously reads a lot of books. <laughs> like, I don't know that I'd heard that story before, like just heard about it in real time in the ways that it really kind of, you know, it's like you hear things and they sound kind of abstract, you know, like, Oh, like that sounds terrible. But I think you were very effective at like kind of bringing us into a moment. I, I do understand how painful that was to relive some of those moments. Um, I also think it's going to be incredibly validating for people. One message I do want to give about health for readers is to pay attention to signs, right? Because there were certain signs of things that were happening with my body very early on uh, that I was not willing to see as a sign. Um, I was I was uncomfortable with what it represented. And if you can get ahead of certain things, you can you can own right. You can manage those things better uh, versus being surprised uh, or in denial. And so, if anything, I hope everyone sort of goes and and reads uh, this story of mine and does that self evaluation and says, is there something I'm ignoring that I'm not paying attention to that I didn't follow up on. Uh, because I feel okay enough to keep on pushing through the day. It is worth it to take that time. I, I absolutely agree with you that it is worth it. Um, y- you know, I, I, ha- I cannot ignore the fact that uh, as we are having this conversation, we're having it in the aftermath of, I think, what many would consider to be a viral moment of yours, <laughs> in which you were uh, really setting someone straight on the mechanics of of how race is treated in America. Part of our proud history as Republicans, the fight against slavery and struggle. Can I just say something, though? I mean, we talk about this as if it is the past. We are looking at, we've covered stories where people have died, have been killed because of racism. Jacksonville, Florida, the Dollar Tree shooting. I mean, this is happening right now. And this is not just the black community, right? The Japanese internment. I mean, those families and descendants are still here. My last name is Alford, not because my family chose that last name. That is the name of the slaveholding family that owned us. You know, I know that this is something that obviously you've explored even prior to this book. You know, uh, you you made a whole documentary, uh, Afro-Latinx Revolution. Shout out to, to that. Hey. You can find it on Prime, y'all. You can find it on Prime or The Griot. Yeah. <laughs> I found myself wondering, as I, as I having read this book, having look, looking at that moment, did this book make you braver in certain ways? Did it did it coalesce anything for you? Um, I don't know. I think sometimes that happens for me, at least, like when I'm writing something and then like my ideas come together in a certain way. And I'm like, that's it. Like, did, th- did you have any of those moments, like those kind of epiphany moments with this book that have made you braver in certain ways, clearer in other ways? I don't know. Well, I, I got to say the act of writing a book is brave <laughs> because once you put it down on paper, yes. it's there forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. You know, really reckoning with like, I'm putting this out in the world and I have to own every word that I put in here and own these stories and own these stances. But also I'm just a person that is always learning. I'm all, I, I'm, I hunger for knowledge. And so I'm like, what if I say something and my position changes or I end up realizing I'm wrong, right? And so the bravery, I think, was in accepting that, like being okay with saying, this is where I'm at in the world right now. And I may grow, I I will grow, I will evolve, like these things are inevitable. Um, But I believe that my, my voice is still worth, you know, being like 
heard in the world. And I think we need more of that. Sometimes it feels like so many people are talking in this world where everyone has a mic that you say, is it even worth me speaking up at all? But I'm here to tell you that it is worth it, right? There's somebody who needs to hear your voice, even if it's not a million people, even if you're not on television um, in the ways that I am or the platforms that we have, your, your voice is worthy. And so the act of writing definitely helped me to be braver, um, to just be okay with, there are going to be people who didn't like <laughs> the stories that I shared or the positions that I took or the things that I said and being at peace with that. Right. Because ultimately it's about being at peace with yourself. And if you are constantly seeking outside validation, approval, you know, popularity, those things come and go. Uh, so the, the act of writing this absolutely helped me to you know, feel more affirmed in who I was. I love it. Well, I, I mean, I found it affirming as well. Um, you. Obviously, you know, you can't tell a story about your own identity without your family being part of the story. Um, you also give us a really intimate glimpse on not just them and their backgrounds and their identities and particularly your parents in this respect. Um, but also just the very, I think, relatable, nuanced, sometimes painful, sometimes aggravating, <laughs> you know, moments that all of us have with our parents. Uh, how is that uh, how was that experience for them and for you two, uh, you know, well, I should, you three, um, as you kind of like drew this story out and, and really kind of revisited some of these moments. And uh, now, obviously, from a grown perspective, how was that yeah. for you all as a family? Wow. Well, I have to say this book brought us closer together as a family. The scariest moment was handing that. the draft manuscript over to my parents. <laughs> that was the scariest moment. Because how often do we spend time with our families and don't really tell them how we feel, right? We, and particularly with daughters, like the orientation we have towards wanting our father's approval, I mean, that that's just a real thing. And I've always wanted my daddy's approval. And so giving him this book where I'm honest about the times where we didn't get along, right? And the things that happened that were hurtful to me, um, the things that I carry today. I mean, that was really hard, but getting through it, having them look at it and read it and still be in, be in relationship with them, that was powerful. That showed me how much they loved me, that they would allow me to tell some of these stories that were hard for them to relive. We did have a couple moments where, with my mom where she was like, could you not put really? that story in? And I respected that. Oh, I respected wow. that. It was, it was hard. It was hard because I was trying to persuade her of the power of letting me talk about certain things. But I, I also mm -hmm. understand that there are certain stories that are not mine to tell. And for my mother, she's a survivor of uh, many different kinds of abuse. Um, she wasn't ready. Right. And so I had to find a way to tell my story um, while respecting her privacy as well, uh, but also keeping the, the truth and the authenticity of it. And I think that there's a lot um, that, again, us as daughters of, of a generation who suffered a lot of trauma uh, can relate to. And people will be able to read between the lines and sort of, again, relate based on their own experiences. But it brought us closer together as a family. Um, writing a memoir about people who are still alive is very hard. I'm telling you, um, but 
if you do it with integrity and love, I actually think that you can grow from it. You can gain from it. So we are good as a family. So no matter what anyone thinks of this book, I know that my family has my back and that means a lot. I, I, I'm so happy to hear that. And no, I, you listen, I didn't think there was anything that I, I would hope would tear you apart. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I definitely, you know, I know, I know people are sensitive about seeing themselves, especially when they're not the ones telling the story. Um, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go big picture now uh, because I'm going to ask you a question. I ask all of our guests here on this show. Oh, you know, okay. I know you are a reader, uh, you know, doing lots of reading at the moment, I'm sure. Um, who do you read? Who do you love? Whose voices on the page resonate with you? Hmm, this is good. Um, so it, it's interesting. This is a very much a reflection of where I'm at right now. I'm reading a lot of history. <laughs> and that is because I am trying to understand the moment that we are in right now. Uh, so that way, as a political analyst and a journalist, I can help people contextualize what is happening and help them to see the patterns and help them to see the ways in which some of the stuff is not new. It's actually just the revival <laughs> of the past. Um, so one book that I'm reading is called The Presidency of Donald Trump. It's by Julian Zelizer, who happens to be uh, one of my professors here uh, at Princeton University. And it's a historical assessment of what that presidency uh, represented, uh, what happened during that presidency. There's so many policy changes, whew, especially in the realm of immigration, um, that we're still grappling with right now. And so I'm reading that. Um, reading another book about fascism in America, light reading, fun reading, um, but fascism and its relationship. Relevant reading. Relevant reading. Um, and, and just like the, 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 the remnants of the past and, how, and why people are turning to authoritarian leadership. Why are they so seduced mm -hmm. by that? Is it that people feel so helpless right now that they're literally willing to turn to someone who's saying, I'll be a dictator because they just want somebody to do something, right? Um, is it, you know, in, in what ways has white supremacy kind of morphed? <laughs> and, and it, I mean, yeah. it's coming back louder than ever unapologetically, uh, right? So those are- Unapologetically, the, yes. Unapologetically. So um, again, I wish I had some lighter- uh, funner uh, recommendations for reading but this this is what the moment calls for and so that's that's what i'm doing right now listen i think i think you are doing exactly what you should do because i think we need to hear from you um and i think again a lot of people are going to find comfort in what you have to say on the topic you know hearing it from somebody who looks like us, who we know has our best interests at heart. Um, you know, I would be remiss if I uh, ended this conversation without also thanking you for your commitment to black media and your commitment to the Grio. Um, you, the Grio makes its way into this book. It gets its own chapter. So thank you for that. For me, the Grio represented freedom, a chance to really find the answers to burning questions about America's future and shift some of the narratives I'd seen so embedded in mainstream news coverage of Black communities. At Northwestern, I had followed the advice to climb the ladder, the old school way in local news. This time, I was committed to doing it my way, finding a place that would let me tell the stories I cared about first and foremost. 
I'm sure everybody here thanks you for that. Um, but also, you know, can you just leave us with a note on what you feel is the importance of black media? Because I think you're always so profound when you talk about this. And you're such an amazing ambassador for what we do. Well, I need everyone watching this to understand the miracle of our survival, right? Not just as a people, but the institution of black media. We have literally been on the front lines of the civil rights movement. It was African-American journalists who had to disguise themselves as preachers. They couldn't be seen as journalists who were documenting the truth. They disguised themselves as preachers and went down right into segregated parts of America to, to document what was happening. And in bringing that truth to the world, it put pressure, it put pressure on American society to say, we are not living up to the ideals that we say we believe in, right? And so what, we, what will we do to close this gap? And, you know, led to the passage of the civil rights movement and all of these things that have been instrumental in moving us forward. Uh, but even now with everything that is happening, we are often the first uh, to, to say what is happening in America around race, uh, around injustice, around policing, right? The Griot, we were one of the first to pick up on the Trayvon Martin story, and it was mainstream media that followed our example. And so when we talk about leading the way, this is what it means to support Black media. So it's not, it's not just about culture. It's not just about sort of the fun moments where, you know, we talk about who won this award and who wore this outfit, which we love, right? But understand the seriousness of what we do. And so I'm just, I'm grateful. You have been, you know, just an incredible leader uh, on the Griot team. We're so lucky to have you. And this show that you are doing, you are elevating reading, which is fundamental for our community. And like, this this is important work uh, that is happening that really is about something that benefits everybody. And that's what people need to understand. You invest in our community, you are investing in the good of the entire country. And so again, thanks for being Absolutely. here. Thanks for having me. This has been amazing. Listen, thank you for being an amazing leader and thank you for this book. Yay! Y'all get American Negra, get into it. And please, uh, you know, Natasha's here at the Griot. You can see her on our platforms. She's amazing. Uh, Natasha, we love you. We're so proud of you. Thank you so much for joining us on Writing Black. And, you know, we are excited for whatever comes next. I'm not going to pressure you, but, you know, I, I, see, I see more in the future. So I'm just going to leave that right there. All right. I love y'all back. Thank you so much. Love you back. Love you back. <laughs> Well, listen, you know, I, I, nothing's better than family. And for me, there's nothing better than having Griot fam on writing black. It makes me so happy. And we're so happy for Natasha and all of our Griot authors, including Michael Harriet, Teray, and anybody else here who wants to publish a book. Maybe it'll be me. I don't know. But for right now, I've got some recommended reading, a little section of the show I like to call my favorites. And, you know, in, in line with uh, Natasha's amazing book, American Negra, is uh, this book, Belonging, by one of our previous guests, Michelle Miller. Now, you might know Michelle Michelle Miller from CBS Sunday Mornings. Uh, you might know her as the former First Lady of New Orleans. Uh, but this book, uh, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love, it's, it's different in tone from Natasha's, but a lot of the themes are similar. Uh, you know, Michelle is also 
Afro-Latina, but that's not always a fact that she knew. And that is one of the most striking things about this narrative, which she really, uh, you know, tells in really tender detail. It's, it's beautifully written. She's a beautiful person. You can also catch up with that episode and all back episodes on the Griot Black Podcast Network. And we hope that you will come join us again for the next episode of Writing Black. Until then, read well. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Griot app or wherever you find your podcasts.